This is Set Aside Some Time, an MSPN podcast, and it's brought to you by the National MSP Network, or MSPN for short. And now, on to the episode. Hello, everybody. Thank you for setting aside some time for us today. My name is Rasa Umagali. I'm an attorney and the Director of Medicare Compliance at Synergy Settlement Services. I'm also your host for today's podcast, and joining us today are Julie Garrison and Brendan D'Souza. Let me tell you a little bit about Julie. Julie Garrison began her legal career as a staff attorney and legal department supervisor for the Illinois Industrial, now the Workers' Compensation Commission. Thereafter, she practiced as a defense counsel for a large labor and employment law firm and later a boutique workers' compensation defense firm. In the early 2010s, Ms. Garrison delved into Medicare secondary payer compliance and joined Nyan Bambrick, Kinsey, and Lowry's Medicare secondary payer compliance team in April of 2017. As an aside, I have to throw in that I have worked with Julie in the past and I have enjoyed working with her tremendously. Ms. Garrison holds both Medicare set-aside certified consultant, MSCC, and certified Medicare secondary payer professional fellow, CMSPF, certifications. Informed by her extensive background and experience in workers' compensation defense, her work includes analysis, allocations, and submissions of Medicare set-asides and resolution of conditional payments and private Medicare liens. Ms. Garrison is a regular contributor to the firm's MSP Compliance Corner newsletter and firm blog, as well as newsletters of the Illinois Self-Insured Association and MSP Network. She also serves on the MSP Network's Data and Development Committee. So welcome, Julie. Now let's turn to, yeah, now let's turn to Brendan D'Souza. Brendan is a managing attorney at Sanderson Firm. PLLC, and he previously served as an in-house compliance counsel for one of the nation's largest providers of Medicare secondary payer compliance services, a licensed attorney, as well as certified Medicare secondary payer professional, CMSP. Brendan advises clients on a variety of MSP legal compliance issues, ranging from lien resolution of complex, multi-defendant asbestosis settlements, to litigation defense against aggressive Medicare Advantage plan organizations. Brenton has experienced arguing cases before administrative law judges regarding conditional payment disputes, and he is used as advocacy to pitch proposed legislation, particularly the PAID Act, on behalf of industry stakeholders to congressional staff members in the United States Capitol, Brenton also currently sits on the board of directors for the National Medicare Secondary Payer Network. Um, Welcome, Brendan. Thank you. So (laughs) now I know that Julie said she is on the uh, MSP Network's Data and Development Committee, and I, too, get on that call quite often. And I'm not sure, Brenton, if you're on that call. You know, there are so many different members and all that, but... But it is a committee that oftentimes discusses CMS determinations and they share ideas on the best way to project in certain situations. 
So during these calls, there are a lot of interesting issues that pop up, and I'm going to pose some of these situations to both of you. And I would love for you to comment on your approaches, understanding, of course, that the approach may depend on whether that Medicare set-aside will or will not be submitted to CMS for review. So why don't we start with the first situation of what do you do when the person stopped treating one to two years ago and you are supposed to provide CMS, assuming you're submitting the proposal to CMS for review, with the last two years of injury-related records? Why don't we start with Julie on this? What, what, how do you handle this, Julie? Well, it's interesting because only in the, what, uh, six years that I've really been actively practicing, you know, in this area, it, it's changed. It used to it used to be that it was sufficient to just confirm the last date of, of treatment and provide the treating records up until that time. But that's just not necessarily enough anymore. Um, we get more and more development letters uh, really requesting the most recent treatment records. And, you know, I have found that, you know, hopefully you have a claimant that's cooperative and they're usually motivated to settle the cases. You know, ask them, you know, to help you get the most recent records, even if it's something that's not specifically, you know, treatment related to the work injury. I mean, oftentimes it's just the primary care provider. And, you know, those records will very often, you know, indicate that there's no ongoing treatment for the work injury. And then you can kind of just go ahead. But, you know, sometimes then, you know, as CMS likes to tell us, you know, these primary providers, you know, will continue to treat the work-related injury conditions and often prescribe, you know, treatment or ongoing care, especially medications. So, um, you know, that's really my advice is to try and get those most re recent records and you're either going to show that there's no ongoing treatment for the injury or there is, and then you just allocate along those lines. But I will add that sometimes you can push back on these development letters and say, you know, this is all the treatment there is for this injury, there's nothing further. And, you know, maybe you'll get a good reviewer that'll go along with you and issue your approval. Yeah, so so thank you for sharing your insight, Julie. How about you, Brendan? Yeah, and Julie is completely spot on. So facially, you would think it would be pretty simple, right? You approach Medicare, you say, hey, um, this person hasn't treated since 2015, there's no more records, here's the last records that we have. Um, please approve this, you know, zero dollar allocation because this person hasn't treated in, you know, seven, however uh, many years. Um, unfortunately, Medicare likes to see, at least recently, they want to see a lot of very specific documentation. So um, medical record records are obviously king. Medicare wants to see clear documentation from the treating provider sort of confirming, hey, you know, Sally Johnson last treated on, you know, May of 2015 um, with the doctor's written uh, uh, signature, um, confirming that, hey, she, she last treated, treated on, on, on this date. Um, and two, she's been released from care with no further treatment. Um, that is really the gold standard in terms of getting an allocation like this approved. Um, unfortunately, if you can't get documentation like that, it's going to be, you're going to there's going to be a development letter. There's going to be some sort of back and forth. Um, so facially, it would seem simple to, to get these approved, but the reality is it sometimes can be a bit challenging. Absolutely. You have to show a negative. So have you had success with, for example, if you have a subpoena that is issued to a doctor's office, the treating physician's office, you know, the record copy service, let's say everything is dated 
August 2023. Then you get a response where the last record that they attached is 2021. Is this sufficient to show that this is a current request and there hasn't been any treatment? Have you guys had any success with that or your thoughts on that approach? Yeah, I've had success with that. I've had success where you get, you know, you just get a statement that there's no further records, you know, even from like a record copy service, you know, that, that's yeah. sufficient. Because I think it's harder to get those, you know, gold standard letters from the doctors, even if it's a, a statement that says, you know, this is the last time this person treated. Um, sometimes you get lucky and you find the right person in the doctor's, you know, organization, you know, to help you with those letters. But yeah, um, yeah I think, a, yeah, a no, no further record statement does work. I, I've had mixed um, success there. And as you as you mentioned earlier, honestly, it could even depend on one who you get at the doctor's office or two. Um, the individual who's at the WCRC who's just reviewing the allocation in the first place and who says, okay, I'll, you know, take this for what it's worth. So, and, and it's, yeah. it's a bit tricky. Yeah, and it really shouldn't be that complicated, you know? So, I mean, that's part of the frustration with, <clears throat> and I think that's part of the reason why there are so many non-submit programs because you yeah. do have to jump through so many hoops. So now let's talk about gold standards and treating physicians and all that. What do you think? Is it worthwhile to try to get the treating physician to outline what is and what is not expected for future treatment? I mean, that's kind of a tricky situation. You don't want to be surprised with some really awful recommendations. So how how do you guys view this? Brendan, why don't we start with you? I'm in, I'm in full support of um, providing detailed, um, specific uh, crafted letters to treating physicians, asking them to confirm, uh, you know, whether a surgery is indicated, whether certain medications are are um, indicated. Um, it's tricky though because you know, most often you probably don't want to leave the questions open ended. You know, say there's a medication in dispute, you ask, um, you know, Mr. Doctor, um, uh, this per or this injured claimant is taking X amount of Vicodin. Um, you know. Are they, you know, um, based on to, to, to a reasonable degree of medical certainty, um, is this specific treatment regimen necessary for X amount of years or for the rest of this person's life? Um, with a check mark box, yes or no. Um, that's typically, I would say, the best way to do it um, because if you if you have yes or no, but then you leave a little dotted lines underneath, allowing the physician to explain. They may blow things up. They may say, no, this person actually needs more than what I indicated in my last uh, record. Or maybe it's a, you know, a generic medication and the, 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 the doctor says, actually, it needs to be a brand name, right? So little things like that will just, just balloon the allocation, which um, oftentimes the insurance carrier player will not be too, too, too happy with that. And also, so, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask, so when we're talking about these letters, are these letters being sent, you know, with, you know, by agreement with the injury victim's attorney? Is the defense attorney sending them? Are there issues with you having communications with the treating physicians? How, how does that part work? So typically, yes. Excellent question. There's typically some level of communication be, um, between the parties. So the applicant okay. and the defense attorney are both on board. They know that a Medicare set aside is being prepared and they're trying to, you know, come to an agreement on what a fair allocation 
looks like. Um, so it, it may be the claimant's attorney submitting this um, request for a letter to the doctors directly. It could be the, the defense attorney. It could be the outfit that prepared the actual allocation um, itself. Um, and, and interesting, you'll you'll find if you do enough of them is, you know, some of these um, physicians' offices uh, maybe can be a little bit uh, uh, greedy, and <laughs> that they'll 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 charge fees for actually completing these these reports. So they'll say, sure. "Hey, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do this unless you give me three hundred dollars or you know, yeah, so, something like that." So it's um it's an interesting uh, side business for for some of these physicians. Well, you do figure they are spending their time, you right. know, and time is money. So it, it depends on the reasonableness of the fee, though. So, yeah. now, thank you for sharing your thoughts, Brendan. Julie, what are your thoughts about trying to get that treater to explain what is going to be happening for this person down the road? Open well, questions, focus yeah. questions. What What are you thinking? Right. I, I never send... A you know, a general questionnaire or anything that's open-ended, you know, like, like Brendan, you know, I tailor my requests to the needs of the claim. And a lot of times I think it's most helpful to clarify um, medication use, you know, maybe it's something that's physician dispensed, or you can confirm discontinued drugs, or maybe a generic versus a brand drug, um, Sometimes, yeah, you can get a doctor to exclude, you know, the bigger ticket items, you know, a surgery, a stimulator, um, especially if it's an, a remote recommendation and the care has not escalated. Um, but, you know, in my experience, doctors are reluctant, you know, to exclude, uh, you know, future care. They're, they don't like to give you that golden language that no future care, you know, is required for the work-related injury. And, um, you know, they like to give options. And yeah. I'm sure we've all gotten those laundry lists, you know, from these doctors of possible future treatments that, you know, are not medically reasonable and, you know, very unlikely to ever be considered by these claimants. So I use these kinds of requests very judiciously. I do think that it's very helpful. Of course, you know, I go through, you know, the counsel, both opposing and defense counsel, but you know, a lot of times they'll say, no, go ahead. You can approach, you know, the doctors. And um, sometimes like the claimant can get the statement easier than I can, or even a defense counsel can. I can certainly echo doctors not wanting to speak in absolutes. And for sure, if there's any sort of helpful language, that's why I typically recommend inserting language that, you know, to a reasonable degree of medical certainty, sort of give them a little bit of leash where they don't feel like they're committing too hard. Right. So when you actually have a treating physician who says that there's no further injury-related care that's indicated, a couple of things. First off, would you recommend submission to CMS? You know, you have a treating physician who's stating that the injury-related care is concluded. No further injury-related care is indicated. So the first question is, is this a case where you think CMS review is appropriate? The second question is, if you do submit that with that type of a treating physician certification, but the injury is one that is more than a strain or a soft tissue injury. Let's say it's, you know, a fracture that had some issues, you know, during the recovery period, but now has stabilized. Are you seeing CMS coming back with zeros or are they putting in standard of care like x-rays and their MRIs? So, so what are you both seeing? Why don't we start with Julie on this one? 
Well, I wish I could say that we're approving these medical zeros, if you will, but I don't see a lot of those. Um, I think, you know, from our data and development um, discussions, no, those they're coming back with, yeah, these standard of care type allocations. And, you know, I had one recently where it I prepared a medical zero and, you know, the doctor gave us the language, gave us the statement, but there was also recent discussion of a, um, a surgery. I think it was a carpal tunnel release. And I, you know, in that case, I say, you know, this surgery is likely to come back, I think, included. So, you know, you do have that decision to make with the client whether they want to submit or not. Well, in that case, too, it sounds as if perhaps the credibility of the treating physician might have been suspect if there were a few notes before this, you don't need any more treatment where there was discussion of surgery. So, you know, there are many kind of different factors to consider. Right. So, yeah. Brendan, what are you thinking with these? Yeah, I mean, I, you submit, I'm, I'm, you submitting, I, you have that treater saying there's no further injury related care indicated. Unfortunately, I have to, or, or I guess, unfortunately, I have to agree with Julie. I, I, I wish I could say that I've, I've seen differently. Um, zero dollar allocations generally, whether you're talking about medical zeros um, or legal zeros are, I wouldn't say 50-50, but it's all, it's all, it's almost always sort of a, a toss up. Um, I've seen, I've seen judge, um, excuse me, not judges, um, um, the WCRC uh, uh, reviewer reject actual court orders by, by, by judges. A clear order saying, you know, based on my interpretation of the, I don't know, Wisconsin Workers' Com Competition Act, this injury is not compensable. Therefore, the employer and carrier should not be responsible for any further treatment. Um, I've seen those court orders get ignored by CMS. Then, of course, you have to go through the process of trying to appeal that. Um, so medical legal zeros, medical zeros, unfortunately, those are reviewed with the most scrutiny and um, they should, should be easy to get them approved. But sometimes it's just it's not. So let's go to those uh, Wisconsin <clears throat> orders. Mm -hmm. where the judge is specifically stating that a condition is not compensable. Right. Is this an order issued after a hearing on the merits or like it what is, is the review is. position on this? And in, in, in the one example I'm, I'm thinking of it was, um, and we had to, we had to, for whatever reason, I think I can remember the, the timeline on it, but I think it was ineligible for re-review. And I think it, at the time it was ineligible for amended reviews. We had to kind of go around to a specific contact at CMS to get that contact to sort of pull that one for review and um, issue a corrected uh, $0 determination. But it was, it, it should have never reached up. Exactly. Right. It was. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So then again, I wonder when you do have an order like that, you know, it's clearly, it's legally binding. Yeah. You know, you've had a hearing on the merits. Why submit? You know, you yeah. have, if there ever is an and, issue, you have your defense yeah. right there. So, you know, I, and I know that submission is kind of the gold standard in terms of, you know, many people want that CMS submission. But there are certain situations where you really have to think about you know, the big picture. Like if I have this evidence, this court order after hearing on the merits, what is to be gained? So- right. Now, I, here is the very last question that actually came up during one of these data and development committee things, which I thought was kind of interesting. So here we go. If 
conditional payments for a denied condition are successfully disputed. How does that impact the potential success at leaving that condition out of the MSA where the treatment was initially accepted but subsequently disputed? Do you think there's any sort of argument that can be made? I mean, understanding these are two different contractors. You've got the yeah. workers' review contractor, you've got the BCRC or CRC. Have you ever made that type of argument or, or what are your thoughts on this question that has come up? So interesting, inter interestingly, I've never seen that, um, I've never seen that argument made. Um, and, I'm, and I'm curious on Julie's experience too, but it's, it's interesting because there's, there's so many players you have, um, you know, the BCRC and CRC handling conditional payments, right. you have the WCRC handling MSAs, and even just focus, focusing on the conditional payment, um, uh, contractors at times will be handling conditional payment issues. And it's almost like the C the CRC and the BCRC don't even communicate with, with each other. So it's no surprise that practically speaking, the WCRC isn't communicating with the BCRC. Um, and so these entities who are, have different functions, um, they, it's, you know, just because the CRC or BCRC denied something or find something non-compensable doesn't necessarily mean that the WCRC is going to agree and not include that condition in the actual MSA. Um, you'd think it should be um, uh, compatible, but I've, I've, I haven't seen that argument worked. I actually don't think I've seen that argument uh, made before. Probably because it's a loser, you know, but you would think yeah. that holistically, you really should have sort of a broad, everybody should kind of be on the same page because we are talking about Medicare being a secondary payer in certain situations. <clears throat> Julie, what do you think? What are your thoughts here? Well, you know, interestingly, I, I kind of have a situation that's coming up that involves this. Um, I've been successful. Is this your question? <laughs> I, don't re I don't recall making this or posing this question at data and development, but um, I've been successful in a couple of rounds of conditional payments in excluding a spinal cord stimulator care. And this is a kind of a curious set of facts because this woman had one implanted and then they had to take it out because of an infection and then that cleared up and then they put it back in. So we've had several rounds of care and I've been able to get that excluded because we had a court order after a hearing on the merits. Now, obviously I'm, I'm getting, I'm preparing to submit the MSA and I'm going to make that argument, you know, based on the court, on the court order. I probably will throw in that you, I'm sorry, can you explain what the court order said? Well, the court order specifically said that a spinal cord stimulator was not reasonably necessary in this particular case. Okay. So they, they excluded that care. They denied that care. It was a, you know, they were looking for a prospective medical award in that situation. And, you know, then this woman went on to have it and I take it out and have it put back in. So it's kind wow. of an interesting case. I mean, I will make that argument based on the court order. Um, but given what's happened, it'll be interesting to see what the, you know, what the WCRC does. And, you know, I think I will add you know, just a short paragraph that we've been successful in having these excluded, you know, on the, on the conditional payment side. Yeah. I don't know that that argument itself will... Well, anyway, Medicare, hopefully the court order will carry weight. 
Well, and Medicare should be primary for that spinal cord stimulator based on that portal. Exactly. So did, I am curious though, did the adjuster pay for any part of that spinal cord stimulator? Like, did they initially? No. Okay, so, so that <laughs> because there's so been you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in conditionals. Okay, so you've got no. a clean payment history then for the I spinal do. cord stimulator, which is always a positive. So, but Julie and Brendan, I have to thank you so much for setting aside some time today to talk to us. And thank you to our audience for setting aside some time to listen to our MSPN podcast. Our next episode is going to take a deep dive into conditional payments. I hope that you can join us. Thank you, Julie and Brendan. Thank, thank you. you. Good to be with you.